Uh, the Imperial Entertainment logo. I miss that. We'll talk about Imperial Entertainment in a moment, though. I am Josh Hadley from 1201 Beyond Productions. With me is Cynical Celluloid's Glenn Criddle for this commentary on a movie nobody has seen, Mikey. <laughs> yeah, we certainly didn't get to see it for quite a while. There was a bit of a to and a fro when it came to the censors for this film, but uh, maybe we'll talk about that in a little while. If you can't tell... Glenn is British, so there's there's a, a big kerfuffle about this movie over in the UK. But the movie itself is pretty obscure. This is one of those movies that really no one has seen. And I gotta be honest, Glenn, there's a reason. It's not very good. Now, that might put people off listening to this commentary, but I do want to add... I think the movie's interesting. I just don't think it's done properly. See, I, I kind of think there's there's a lot going for the movie, at least in the beginning. I, I think, for me, it's more um, later on in the film, but we'll get to that when we get to that sort of point. It's uh, I don't think it's intrinsically a bad film, but there is some very odd decisions that were made about it, that's certain. And I'm not sure if those decisions come from the director or if they come from the writer, because Dennis Demeter Denick, as you just saw his credit there, this is his first feature. All he'd made is a short film before this, and then he basically went to TV television. And he did a couple of direct-to-video movies that also no one has heard of after this. But it's it sort of... You can tell this is his first movie, can't you? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, I, I think certainly when it comes to the uh, the way that the writing is handled and all that kind of stuff, there is a certain feel to the movie that uh, feels a little bit um, exploratory, to say the least. Uh, I think there's a lot, of, like I say, there's a lot of good stuff that goes on in this film. Uh, there was a lot of very solid ideas that uh, started, not least with this character. Um, as we're introduced to him, he's, it's kind of an interesting, rather intriguing kind of character. Uh, I have to dis- I have to disagree with you on that because, I mean, obviously, if you're listening to us, we at least hope you've already watched the movie. I I think I don't know if it's how the direction is done or how Brian Bonsell plays Mikey. He plays him so transparently evil that it's one of those things where you ask yourself, how is nobody picking up that this kid is a complete sociopath? This isn't like a Dexter Morgan kind of thing, where he's an expert at hiding his sociopathy. This is, he's a clear sociopath, and everyone's like, oh, he just needs direction. He just needs love. Is is that like a societal thing where we're going, oh, there is no such thing as a bad kid, but the movie says, yes, yes, there is. I, I think there is. I think you're probably quite right with that in in that, um, yes, it, to us, the audience, he clearly is this uh, sociopathic, um, almost psychopathic kind of character. He, he is, um, I, I think that's partly down to the direction more than um, necessarily how he's played. You've got all the music sort of going on in the background, the evil music, um, and and how we how the characters shot and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, but I think you know from uh, the characters' point, other characters' point of view in the film's world, 
he's this troubled child, but, you know, he is just a kid. Nobody wants to expect that of the kid. And, you know, I think that actually kind of plays into part of the reason why the BBFC had a problem with this particular film uh, back in the day. Um, just as a TLDR to the uh, to the British censorship history of this, uh, the BBFC essentially refused it as a certificate at the time that they wanted to get it released. Now, initially, they were actually offered a certificate, but then the murder of James Bolger happened, and they kind of went, oh, crap, we can't actually um, release this film at this point, which was quite understandable if you kind of look at the, the circumstances. So, I mean, people didn't expect that of James Bol uh, Bolger's killers. You know, and um, the idea of um, a child of this age doing such horrible things. Um, yeah, from the characters within the, the, the film's world, I can understand why they wouldn't want to believe that. See, I, I'm not so sure I dis I'm not so sure I agree with that because, uh, again, you have to look at this logically. Now, this movie is not realistic in any way. I'll, I'll point out a couple more of those later. But how many fatal accidents, and I'm doing finger quotes, have to happen around this kid before somebody goes, maybe the kid is the problem. <laughs> when, when, when you're nearing double digits of parents and siblings that have had fatal accidents around this one boy in only a matter of months, I think even the cops are going to go, I think it's the kid. Yeah, and I think that's where the film kind of jumps the shark, and uh, particularly later on in... Um, uh, where the where the kind of tone of the film shifts somewhat, it's um, it's certainly kind of one of those things you look at. You go, yeah, it's not that realistic. Nobody's going to believe that, are they? Surely. Um, Is, uh, I, mean, I, I wanted to ask though: Are scenes like this one of the reasons it was refused certification in the UK? When you murder a young child in the opening minutes of your movie on camera. Well, I think that's certainly one of the more disturbing aspects of it. That um, that is actually um, a very effectively filmed scene. That uh, poor little girl drowning at, uh, because of Mikey, and I, I must admit that gave me a little bit of a chill to say the least the first time I watched this film. But that wasn't specifically what caused the problem. The problem was more to do with the fact that Mikey is the age that he is and does what he does. Um, there's a whole bunch of things that uh, the BBFC sort of look at, and it's almost sometimes kind of harking back to the sort of rules of the Hayes Code and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, where there, there's got to be kind of proper justice served and all that kind of stuff. But they're looking at you know, the the child, Mikey, and thinking that's um, kind of oddly portrayed. <laughs> that was their difficulty. They had a real problem with... Um, with, with dealing with that as opposed to the the violence that was actually in it. Incidentally, I mean, they were actually willing to give this a cinema certificate, but by that point, it was about three years down the line, and the distributors just kind of had enough by that point. Didn't you tell me that when you were researching this, the movie is still kind of effectively banned in the UK, that there's no DVD, no Blu-ray, it's not on streaming, that the movie is essentially still banned over there? 
It is, but um, it's essentially what that comes down to is that nobody's resubmitted it. Um, the BBFC won't sort of look back at all the stuff that they banned and go, yeah, actually, we'll waive that now, because um, that's not what they do. If someone was to resubmit it these days, the chances are it would get a, it would get a release, probably with a, possibly with an 18, because of the child, um, the child's age. But, um, yeah, I, I don't see any real problems with it actually getting a release these days. Most of the problems it had was literally down to the, um, down to the timing. Um, ironically enough, what happened, um, when they, when they actually initially submitted it, which was like late 1991, they, uh, they said to the BBFC, can you check this? And they went, yeah, we're likely to give you an 18 for this. Uh, but now you've got to go and get your packaging kind of um, examined and um, certified, which is something that happens as part of the class- classification in this country. And by the time they'd actually gone through that process, uh, James Bulge was murdered, uh, was murdered, and the BBFC at that point just went, no, we can't actually give you a certificate. So it was, it was down to poor timing. If it had it happened before this would have been given an 18 uh, certificate release on DVD or, or video at the time and um, all would have been well for them. But um, I can actually understand why they had a problem with with releasing it. It would have been an almost existential problem for them, in my opinion. Well, there, there's a weird thing. You, you mentioned the packaging. Mm-hmm. Because in America, and I don't know if a lawsuit was involved or not, the initial tagline for the movie was Freddy and Jason were once children too. And that's just both incredibly exploitative, and I don't know if New Line and Paramount had sued over that, because then when it was actually came out on video, it was changed to evil doesn't... I, I, I can't remember exactly what it was. It, it, it was something like... With evil, size doesn't matter, I think. <laughs> Catchy. <laughs> but it, it was, in the in all the initial ads, it was the Freddy and Jason were children once, too. Mm-hmm. I, I, I assume a lawsuit was involved. Because isn't that almost sort of calling out, like, like if Coke would say, hey, at least we're not as bad as Pepsi in one of their ads? I guess, I don't know. I mean, I don't think that's a particularly um, uh, bad comparison to make. Did someone have a problem with it? I I guess it's hard to say. If they did, I think they were overplaying it. Well, because this movie barely... Okay, it it didn't come out in the UK. It barely came out in America. Mm -hmm. It got... I I don't know if it got theatrical at all. I, I haven't found any evidence of a theatrical run... And it barely just squeaked out on a now super rare VHS release. A DVD came out in the early 2000s that went for expensive prices. This movie basically doesn't exist. Most people have never seen this movie because if you describe this movie to someone, they're going to go, oh, it's like the problem child films. No, no, no. These are the problem child films if they're played 100% straight. 
Yeah, that's a very good comparison. You know, I mean, it has a little touch of Home Alone as well. I guess you know, it would be kind of the right sort of time for that that kind of film, and then sort of crossing it over into the horror genre. It, it's quite an intriguing idea. Um, and yes, it played very, very straight. This is uh, a film that doesn't really do much tongue-in-cheek until at least the second half. But even then, and I don't it's think that dark, I don't think humor. that's intentional, though. The tongue in cheek in the second half, I think that's just the filmmakers were clueless. I don't think they were trying to be tongue in cheek in the second half of the movie. No, probably not. Um, but it certainly comes across like that. It, that's the point where they start hitting all the cliches, and you know, this first half, yes, it has its share of cliches, but it's it manages to play him straight enough that it doesn't doesn't harm it too badly. And well, but you've got scenes like this. Mm-hmm. This is where I'm going to first call some of the bullshit on, that's not how this works. They're adopting a child, and they're meeting him on the day of his adoption, which is only days after his last adoptive family was killed. That's not how adoption works. It's a long process. It's a long process of meeting and seeing if everybody meshes. There are background checks. Even in 1992, you don't just go and pick up a kid and, hey, you're our son now. That's not how this works. It's the movie world, Josh. They've got to move things along. (laughs) I'm just saying this is only the beginning of how unrealistic parts of this movie are. But we are talking about a horror movie version of Problem Child, so there you go. And, you know, I, I kind of forgive it a lot of those those sorts of things. I don't look at this as being uh, particularly uh, like a documentary or anything. It's just um, uh, a horror movie idea. And uh, for the first half of it, at least, I think it, it does that uh, shockingly straight-faced and reasonably well. Well, like, one of the problems I have with the movie, and and, and this does go to the direction, it's so flatly shot. This movie is shot like, and I don't mean in, in in a sexual sense, but like a 1989 to 1991 late night Cinemax movie. It is shot so matter of factly, so many whites, so many browns, there's no flair whatsoever, and that that I think goes to the direction, j- just like with all of these obvious setups, like him talking about the, why are these fish separated? Oh, because the mom will eat them. You know, you know, the whole Chekhov's gun thing. Like they keep, in- they keep introducing things like the bow and arrow that they're going to introduce later and he had the ball bearings where he killed from, where he, you know, Looney tuned his dad, or, you know, the fake dad earlier and all that. This this is just, you can tell this is a first-time director. He doesn't know how to subtly set things up. He doesn't know how to foreshadow things without hitting you over the head with it. I just think it's so blandly and boringly directed. But on the other hand, he's a fantastic cast. Like, look at Ashley Lawrence. She hasn't done a ton of things. I've always liked Ashley Lawrence. You got John Deal from Miami Vice. Later, you have Ferris Bueller's dad in this. You've got a pretty decent cast with some name actors, and they don't really do anything with them. 
It's kind of all centred on Mikey anyway, for the most part. I, I think I do take your point, though, that it, the film is very blunt when it comes to um, setting things up, stuff like the fish, stuff like the the bow and arrow. Um, and, and and later on, there's there's various bits which uh, are, are clear foreshadowing for something which is going to happen later. If there's any major fault to the film, that I think is... Um, less forgivable than, than most. It's, it's possibly how, um, over the, over the head it, it really is for that. It really does kind of, uh, sack you with that kind of stuff. But, you know, I mean, it, it, I, I have seen worse and the, uh, the positive end of that is at least they went to some effort to kind of set stuff up. It's just a shame it isn't done a little bit more elegantly. Well, but, and I don't know who to blame for that. I don't know if that's the director or if that's the writer, because the writer of this, Jonathan Glasner, has had a long career working on, like, The Outer Limits and Stargate and 21 Jump Street, Freddy's Nightmares, and all that. I, I'm gonna su- suspect he's a better writer than, than to be just plugging that kind of stuff in like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, but that's a lot of TV stuff we've um, yeah, that you've just gone through there. And obviously, this being a film, there's a lot less time for that kind of stuff to be introduced and um, pushed forward. So maybe that's an issue. Uh, was this his uh, first feature film? This was his first film, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that would certainly kind of explain a certain amount, certainly because the you know the format is is very different. Um unless you're in the the Marvel cinematic universe obviously. <laughs> uh, well let's let's talk for a moment quick about I mentioned at the very beginning Imperial Entertainment. I don't know what what company released this over in the UK, but Imperial Entertainment in America was one of those companies that Always wanted to be a mini-major, but just never quite got there. You know, you always saw their their stuff on direct-to-video movies, rarely, rarely theatrical films, and then now they're, parts of, they're a part of Lionsgate, so they're now perfart of, perfart of a... Uh, of a professional bomb factory. I, I used to, used to joke that that Lionsgate has gone into weapons grade manufacturing because they're a professional bomb factory at this point. <laughs> so it totally makes sense that they acquire Imperial Entertainment at some point. <laughs> I don't know if it was Imperial that actually tried to release it over here. It's a little hard to find that information because obviously the film never actually made it out. Um, I can't remember seeing anything on the BBFC website about the uh, distributor. Only, yeah, you know, I've got a little bit of the history of the uh, of what happened with the film, trying to get released over there, but that was about it. I suspect it was probably a different distributor when it was over here. That's a possibility, but like, look at what I was talking about. Like this, this scene serves no purpose but to set up Mikey using the bow and arrow later. Which, by the way, I do want to say he is damn good with it later. I don't know if they're implying he he had bow and arrow training prior to the movie, but he is just amazing at it for a ten year old. 
Yeah, it seems to be a bit of a natural. I think that's actually what the case is with this. He's he just happens to be a bit of a natural with uh, with weaponry <laughs> because he's a psych. Which I actually think what would have been more interesting to analyze in this movie, rather than making it basically a slasher movie version of Problem Child, I actually think it would have been more interesting to see how he became this. Yes, we get a little bit of information about, you know, his his birth mother and all that, blah, blah, blah. But how did he get like this? Was he born a psychopath, as some people are? Or did he become a psychopath later? Because you don't just all of a sudden... I, I, I have a feeling the the family and the little girl that we saw being killed at the beginning were probably not his first victims if he's this psychopathic in the movie. There's more backstory that I think was more interesting than the forestory we got in this. Yeah, I, I think given how other things in this film are somewhat clunky, it's probably better to have left it to the uh, to the imagination somewhat. Um, I, you can come up with a multitude of ideas that his original parents, his real parents, were abusive, um, and that's what tipped him over the edge. And then they met with an unfortunate fate. <laughs> Moving on to the next family, um, whenever they they gave him the slightest bit of a snub, then then he he just started to lose his shit somewhat. I, I kind of think of it in those sorts of terms. It's it's not too. It's not too big a loss to the film to not know his uh, his back history, I think, and possibly it's even to its benefit. Well, I think part of the problem, and I'm probably going to take crap for this, but I think part of the problem is Brian Bonsall. He's never been a particularly talented actor because there was this weird thing where, you know, he did television, 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 television. He he famously was the character that everyone says ruined family ties when he came into that show. And he did a lot of television, Star Trek The Next Generation, starting in 1992 as Worf's son, Alexander Ryshenko. Mm. And you, there, there was this period, Mikey was the beginning of this, from 1992 to 1994, where someone in Hollywood decided... No, no, no. Brian's a movie actor. And they, they had him in four movies, all of which bombed, and all of which, I'm gonna say it, he's awful. He is the weakest part of this movie. When you've got a movie like this, where you have a child character who's a psychopath, but is trying to hide it, although poorly, I think you have to have a really strong child actor. And Bonsell is not it, Glenn. He, Bonsell's just, I mean, he's not like jaw-droppingly terrible, but he's not good. I, I don't, again, I don't know if it's the direction or the actor, but his absolute lack of subtlety in anything. Because if you go back and look at like the Dexter TV show, mm-hmm. Dexter was an expert at hiding the fact that he was a psychopath. And then you look at something like the Hannibal TV show that was on NBC in the, you know, like 10 years ago or whatever it was, and Mads Mikkelsen played Hannibal Lecter, so, (laughs) yet all the characters keep going, no, Graham, Hannibal's one of us, he's one of us, and he played it so cartoonishly evil that 
it's almost an insult to the audience's intelligence that are all the characters stupid? Is that what you're trying to tell me, that they're so dumb? And I'm not talking about, like, like what we discussed earlier about how the cops can't put together that all of these mysterious deaths keep happening around Mikey. I'm just talking about, how do the characters not see? This kid is disturbed. He's acting disturbed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think with for me, it's not that he's necessarily a a terrible actor. I think that he doesn't have an awful lot of um, range in the, in the important uh, parts of the role, and I don't think that's helped by the direction. I don't think that's helped necessarily by the way he's he's filmed, but he doesn't have much uh, sort of facial acting going on I think he looks a little flat in that kind of respect but um, so I mean no I certainly don't think he's an awful actor by any means but it's just um, I'd say it was a little bit flat is the uh, the biggest criticism I'd have for that but most of it when it comes to child actors and stuff I tend to put um, most of the weight onto the onto the director because you know you, you're making a film with a child as the central character that has to ha- really kind of um, do a lot. It's a very difficult role to do something like this. And the director is the one that has to be able to tease that out of the child. And generally speaking, you know, if, you, if you've got a good director and a um, even a mediocre child actor, you should be able to make something work. Um but I think, you know, there is, is certain aspects of the film that is just flat in general. Just shots like this. Of, most shots of Mikey tend to be very flat. It's like straight on, face on to the camera. And it always feels a little bit kind of um, square. It's a bit blocky. So everything's at 90 degrees to each other. So I, I, I kind of think a certain amount of that kind of sucks the life out of the performances. Well, I think that I think that could have been fixed with dynamic lighting because, like I said, look at how everything is a just flat, evenly lit primary color. This movie, if you just look at it on a visual level, this could be an A team episode mm-hmm. on a visual level. It's just there's no flare at all, and sometimes that can work because, especially when you're doing like a domestic type film like this, you could say. That's what we want. We want to make it look like evil can penetrate even into the most safe, bland environments. I don't think that's a statement the director was making. I think he just shot this very, very blandly. Yeah, it does feel very made-for-TV kind of stuff. And if what he's done before this was TV, then, yeah, maybe that style kind of carries over. Um, I think a feature film does need to be a bit more dynamic with the camera and stuff like that. That said, I mean, it doesn't, to me, look awful. It just looks a little unremarkable. Uh, and well, it's you could bland, say- because y- y- even notice, Glenn, the camera barely ever moves. There's no sweeping shots, no tracking shots. They haven't laid down any anything. The camera barely moves. It's just... A lockdown camera, things happen, we cut to coverage. Mm. This is textbook, first-time director stuff. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, it, it, it's 
certainly competent. You know, the shots are in focus and, uh, you know, it, it, it looks reasonable. It just doesn't look remarkable. And I think that's probably the, um, the biggest failure when it comes to how, what the film looks like is nothing really particularly looks remarkable. Um, so yeah, it's a little monotone in that kind of way, but I wouldn't say it was bad, just, just, just not remarkable. <laughs> well, and I, I think one of the other things, and, and this is both a, a positive and a negative to the movie, it's really early 90s. Now, it's not early 90s in a renegade, the TV show with Lorenzo Lamas sort of way, mm-hmm. which might be the most 90s TV show ever made, but just look at look at the fashion, look at the colors, look at the backgrounds, the the hairstyles. This is really 1992, man. Yeah, uh, traumatically so, <laughs> to say the least. And this is this is one of those scenes um, that that kind of made me giggle the first time I saw it. Is it? It, this is actually kind of justifying your point of view to to some extent. You know, the the obvious psychopathy, kind of yeah. <laughs> and I find that I found that quite amusing. Um, I mean, if, as, as dry as this film can be, or as straight faced as this film can be, it does have those moments. It does make you giggle, um, and I guess to some degree, that's a little bit of a confusing thing about the film. Uh, it does. So I am going to be dead serious about this. I'm going to um, tell you this story about this psychopathic child. I want you to be horrified and um, potentially scared and all these things that you would expect of this this kind of film. Uh, but then it kind of throws in these little cliches here and there, and you you can't help but laugh at it to some degree because what are you going to do? It's it's like these kids drawing um, people being decapitated and, and by turkeys yes he's setting fires in, in his house, houses and stuff like that um, he's the sole survivor of uh, multiple murder in the house <laughs> and I put that in um, in quotes because obviously we know the truth of what he did so yeah it's, it's a little goofy the film uh, but it doesn't do enough to sort of suggest that maybe that was an intentional thing because uh, I don't think it was. Well, I, I also look at the fact now. Again, I'm going to allow a little bit because the character is ten years old, but the writers should have thought this through because they try to place the Mikey character as this intelligent schemer. I mean, you can see with all the Chekhov's gun stuff we were talking about earlier. And for for people who don't know what Chekhov's gun is, Chekhov's gun is. If you introduce something, an object or an ability in the first act of the movie, you usually will then have that come into play in the third act. You know, if all of a sudden if there's, there's a gun hanging on the wall that's ornamental, well, that gun's going to be used to stop the bad guy. Chekhov's gun, you introduce something, which I think is lazy, you introduce it because you want it to be used. There's no subtlety in the Chekhov's gun theory. But... They they keep setting up that Mikey is this long-term schemer, that he's so smart, yet he what's what's his what's his end game here? How many times does he think he can just murder people and get away with it, especially while being dumb enough to fucking videotape it? 
I think one of the problems with the character is that um, you have, like you say, so much intelligence kind of thrown upon this uh, very, very young boy. It's basically that problem of having an, uh, an adult mind in a child's body. And that's clearly a writing issue. That's not even, not even necessarily a direction issue. Um, although the director should have picked up on that kind of stuff and, and dealt with it. But when it comes down to it, this is how the character is written. So, you know, you can take a certain amount of the blame away from the child actor for that because, you know, he's doing his job. He's saying the lines and um, hitting his marks and that kind of stuff. But the uh, the central premise of what this character is is super intelligent um um, child is, is is a little it's always a little bit of a hokey device having that kind of adult brain in a child's body type thing and you know there's plenty of stories that kind of make fun of that you know like um, Big or Freaky Friday or stuff like that and this this kind of does it but it doesn't have that excuse of, make, of that being a explainable thing within the story's world yeah, because it just, it really bothered me when I was watching this because they go out of their way to try and make Mikey seem so intelligent, yet he keeps making these dumb decisions. Now, uh, a snobbish film critic in me might say, well, that was intentional. The director is trying to, to deal with the dichotomy of an adult's brain and the child's body, but I don't think any of that's actually there. Yeah, it's, um, it's one of those things as well, you know, because it's not just that he's smart, it's that everyone around him is willfully ignorant. They, they're almost inviting this thing. Oh, uh, foreshadowing, by the way. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, everyone... Stupid ab- yeah. foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah. We'll get to that when it comes around to it. But, uh, yeah, all the... Adults around him um, are so blinded, and you can explain it in in certain ways, but the film really does push the limits that you have to uh, kind of swing with a lot of uh, rather outrageous things to have to accept. Well, I'm not sure if this is intentional or not, but... Maybe, again, this is the film snob critic in me coming out, maybe the movie is trying to make a statement about how we as a society, American and, you know, British specifically, are, we go out of our way to assign the childlike qualities to a child to the point that, that we, like you pointed out, willful ignorance, that we're going out of our way to give Mikey the benefit of the doubt when, if he was, say, 16, we would not be. Mm-hmm. That maybe the movie is trying to make some sort of a statement about this sort of thing, but I don't think any of that's actually there. No, I don't think it's particularly there. I mean, this is actually another example of um, some of the oddity of the writing of the character. Because um, not only is he um, a, an adult mind in a child's body, he's... Um, Kind of sexual as well. There's there's plenty of moments in this film where it gets decidedly uncomfortable when it comes to that kind of stuff. And Which 
I think that's what the director wanted. I think he wanted this to all be uncomfortable because it's a 10-year-old. Because, again, let's just say the character was 16. Mm. It would just come off as a slasher movie at that point. Which is why I said, while I don't particularly like this movie, what's interesting, if a better script and a direct, better director had handled it, I think this movie does have an interesting angle with the fact that he is only 10 years old and he's this smart and this calculating, leaving out the dumb mistakes that he obviously makes, but also the weird sex stuff that it almost seems like this movie might have been written for a slightly older character and then someone decided, nah, man, if we make it younger, that'll make it like more graphic, man. I think it certainly works in terms of making it a lot more uncomfortable. Uh, had this been an older character, uh, then it would have been, um, shall I say, less shocking. And there's plenty in this film that does feel particularly uncomfortable because it's uh, a, a child of that age. And some of the uncomfortable feelings that you get from this film, I don't think are necessarily... Um, done appropriately and I don't want to get all kind of like kind of snoot issue or anything about that but uh, there's something particularly off-putting about the um, the fact that this this 10 year old boy is like this uh, and goes to the lengths that he does to try to get with this girl it's it there's a dissonance there in kind of like morality terms, I guess. You know, certainly I look at this character and I go, that's, that's kind of icky. <laughs> well, okay, there, there's not, not just that, but I do agree with you on that. But there's the fact that I can't remember what her age is, but I think she's supposed to be like, she, we saw her driving, so she's over 16. And he's 10. Mm -hmm. What did he think was going to happen? That she was going to pull down his pants and start blowing him? Or he was going to get to play with her boobs? I mean, did he think, hey, this 16-year-old girl, 16 or 17, is totally going to date me as a 10-year-old? There's nothing weird about that at all. I, I, I don't... I, I get that there's a sociopathy involved here, that there's a narcissism and a misanthrope sort of angle. But... I don't understand, even from the character's perspective, what he was expecting to happen. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's a good enough question. I, I kind of like assigned uh, just pure narcissism on his part. And, and the entitlement there is one thing about the character that is that um, he demands the attention. He demands um, that um, people give him that uh, unconditional love that he gets to do whatever he wants to do um, without any kind of blowback. And, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of look at it in those sorts of terms. It, it kind of makes sense from the... that the character, if he is that kind of way, would would be able to do that. However, it still kind of feels wrong that it's a 10-year-old boy who's perving after this... Uh, much older girl. And I, I think scenes like this just it shows us what a psychopath he is, but how does no one else notice any of this stuff? For one thing, nobody 
looks at his videotapes. What, what does he do? Sit in his room where, where he does not have a TV? D- does he sit in his room and just imagine what's on the tapes? Or does he play the tapes back on his TV and risk getting caught? I don't... I, I, I get that there's that, that whole serial killer thing about needing trophies. You can relive the fantasy. I've watched enough, you know, Law and & Order and NCIS to have picked up on that kind of thing. But... The videotaping thing, it seems like it's only here so he can go, hey, look at this, you know, I'm doing this thing that's very 1992, I've got my own camera, etc., etc. I don't know, it just, it doesn't seem to make sense even within the twisted logic of the story that we're watching. I don't know, I mean, it's it's one of those that... Yeah, if you think about it in those kind of ways, maybe it doesn't necessarily make all the sense in the world, but um, it, it's minor enough for me not to be kind of bothered by that particularly. But um, yeah, he's it's it's more kind of how the characters are sort of related to him more than what he does. That that kind of uh, bothers me. I do like this this character that um, we're seeing at the moment. Uh, Ashley Lawrence, uh, yeah, the she's teacher. she's kind of set up to be this um, uh, the the character that's going to unmask him, if you will. And uh, it it that film handles that kind of end of it rather interestingly. I thought it, that is actually one of the good things about the movie for me. I, I do enjoy that little bit of the arc. Um, I mean, if there is one thing about the film. It does really kind of try to play as much against expectations as possible. You know, whether I, I disagree with you on that. I, I think it plays exactly into almost everything you think is going to happen does. Uh, only on a certain extent. I mean, certainly when you're talking about stuff like the uh, the foreshadowing of like kind of the weaponry and uh, that kind of stuff. Yes, but. Um, I, I think usually the way that the film like this will go, um, this does kind of play against that to somewhat, uh, to some extent, and that's that's for me is one of the uh, the better things about the film. Okay, I I disagree with you on that. I think the movie is almost paint by numbers for this type of story. I I, I will I will agree on Ashley Lawrence though, because first of all. Ashley Lawrence is one of those actresses that never really became big. I mean, she was in Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2. Hellraiser 3 doesn't count because that's only deleted scenes from Hellraiser 2. And then she did like a Monsters episode and she did this movie, which, you know, obviously didn't do crap for anybody. She never really became big and I always thought she was a moderate, she was a pretty talented actress who had a moderately good chance at a career and I don't know if it was her choice or some bad decisions that that kept her away from becoming like a horror superstar it's hard to say uh, she certainly was good enough in most of those films to have made a reasonable career although you know I guess when he, you're kind of putting her up against the Barbara Cramptons of the world and the likes uh, possibly is a little bit plain looking uh, to oh, hit you shut your mouth. Ashley Lawrence is so cute. Oh, I, I agree. I agree. But when you're talking... Um, <laughs> sorry, slightly distracted. 
Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, Glenn and I are both straight men. There was a boob scene. We we have to point that out. <laughs> it's again, it is another one of those scenes that when I first watched it, it's like just oh, really? You're going there? Well, because it's shot in a. I, 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 sensual is not the right word, but it's shot in an exploitative sort of way, and we, the audience, might go, ooh, cleavage, but we also go, but this is more or less the POV of a 10-year-old boy. Yeah, it's not terribly consistent in that respect, though, is it, the film, in, in terms of the uh, the point of view? Um, that's one of the things I always found a little bit tricky with the... Uh, with sort of getting a feel for the film it all, all feels a little bit sort of um, third person doesn't really get so much into his head except for little flashes but um, yeah yeah uh, getting back to the Ashley Lawrence I guess uh, yeah uh, it's, uh, when, when you put her up against the Barbara Cramptons and the likes um, uh, yeah she she doesn't kind of strike that uh, that regular um horror, beauty kind of thing. I mean, she is a damn fine-looking ass and all, but, um, yeah, she's just kind of a little bit ordinary for that, I guess. That's just my well, opinion. I, I want to talk about the scene that, that we're still in, but at the beginning, so he's watching the the murder from the beginning of the movie that he videotaped right there when, I'm just going to call him Dad because, you know, the, the adoption and all that. When his dad comes in, and it's like, okay, it's almost like he wants to be caught. <laughs> and I, I don't know if that's bad screenwriting or if that's like, oh, he has this danger thing. He secretly wants to be caught and punished because I don't think this character wants to be caught and punished. But he keeps, I, again, this goes to the, you're not even pretending anymore after a certain point that you're not psychotic. So, I just think that's inconsistency in the writing. And like this, this is just... Okay, it's weird how the tone can deal with a scene like this. If this were in an Animal House movie and you had some happy, upbeat music, this would be a wacky comedy scene. But here it's not, is it? No, no again, it's creepy because it's, it's supposed to be Mikey's point of view. Uh, and that's just uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, I think when it comes to the character, there is a arrogance to the character which explains a certain amount about um, what he does, but it doesn't really kind of explain away necessarily how he gets away with so much of it. How the uh, the people around him are are, are so blinkered um, to seeing the, the the true nature of him. And again, I'm just going to go with, he seems to have no long-term plan. So, okay, he's going to kill her boyfriend. But, again, he doesn't think this is going to point to more mysterious deaths happening around Mikey. And also, I just, I have a real problem with the title. I think the title of this movie, Mikey, mm. might have been a, one of the reasons no one in America cared. Mikey is a bad title for a movie like this. That literally sounds like a Lifetime TV movie title. <laughs> it does sound a little bit um, soft, doesn't it, really? 
Um, yeah, I guess you know you're looking at the video cover or whatever, then it can it can help. But um, if you said to someone who hasn't seen it, have you seen Mikey the film Mikey? It doesn't really kind of evoke much in you, I guess. I'm not quite sure what you would call it other than that, but there you go. Evil knows no size <laughs> or small packages or something. It, it, I just came up with those off the top of my head, and they're still better than Mikey. Yeah, evil Mikey, comes in no plumper size. Mikey <laughs> is just a bad title. It, it's just a little uninspired, I think. Um, it's not necessarily bad, it's just a little uninspired. I think particularly when it comes to a film like this, you want something which is going to grab your attention and uh, at least give you some idea of what the film is trying to do. Because uh, Mikey is such a generic name, it's... Yeah, I mean, maybe that was the point. I mean, he's supposed to be this... this to everybody around him, this ordinary kid. And of course, he isn't. But I think that's a hard thing to um, try to assign to something like a type like Mikey. <laughs> well, I think there's also another big problem this movie has is likability. Now, obviously, we're not supposed to like Mikey because he's the, the psychopath. But with the exception of Ashley Lawrence... Can you find a likable character in this? Because, okay, this is something that screenwriters have gotten wrong ever since the slasher movie boom of the early 80s. That, that you know, in those movies there was always, you know, one or two asshole characters that you're like, oh, I can't wait till Jason sticks him through the face with some blunt object. But that they seem to have gotten, by even the early 90s like this, if we make all the characters assholes, then the audience wants to see them die. I don't it, think that was the it, case it should, of this. I think it's not I, much I, the case I just, of this. Well, but see, if you'd made the characters all inherently sympathetic and likable, we would not want them to die. But his parents are so ridiculously sweet and nice that it comes across like, well, these people definitely have bodies in their basement. You've got you've got his dork little friend next door, the sister who's just sort of a dumb slut. The only really likable character, other you know, of the victims, is Ashley Lawrence. She's the only one that you actually say, you know what? I actually kind of don't want to see her die. Everyone else, it's just a matter of time, and you know since you've already watched this movie, I actually kind of thought she was going to be the final girl. That that part did surprise me a little bit. I thought she was going to be the final girl that stopped Mikey, and that's not how that works out. No, I mean, actually, this is one of the difficult things with the film, having a character of this age that is the bad guy, is what do you do with them? Um, I mean, the film so far hasn't really kind of spared an awful lot of, uh, shall we say, the traditional cinematic sensibilities. So, it's a good chance, you know, when you're watching something like this, you, you sort of go, is there a chance that they could kill him off at the end or do something to to stop him? Or would they go that far? I mean, I must admit, the first time I watched it, I was like, I... I didn't really think they would go quite that far anyway. So, <laughs> it, it, 
it's a difficult thing to do. What do you do with the psychopathic ten-year-old? It's tricky to kill characters like that off and actually leave the audience with any kind of um, good feelings towards you as a filmmaker if you do that kind of stuff. But the rest of the characters in this film, it's a, a lot of them are just a little bit plain and a little bit functional. And I think that's part of the problem. They're sort of there to fulfill um, a particular role. Uh, Ashley Lawrence's character is, is one of those characters that does actually feel like um, she's trying to... Um, be a person? Be a, Not just be a person, but, be, but try to do something about what's going on. It, 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 this, this is the scene that makes me laugh though because they're like kind of there's nothing wrong with him he might be doing this that and the other and there may be kind of a mysterious past but there's absolutely nothing wrong with this child what do you mean that you found a body in the pool <laughs> it's like it, it's a little frustrating in some respects when you get characters like that because they are a, a, like I say they're so blinkered to to what's going on and it's not really conveyed um, as to why they're like that I mean if you had some idea of these guys past that they had done this so many times before and they've dealt with um, children with uh, serious problems mental problems and um, behavioural problems that they might feel a bit defensive of him and trying to look after him and all that kind of stuff. But the, uh, um, I think that's something that could have worked in a series, TV series, but not so much in a, in a small film. It's very difficult to transmit that kind of information, um, within the time scope that you've got. And that's one thing about the film. It does feel a little bit compressed. It does to me anyway. A little bit, but I actually think, and given that the, the the tag at the ending of this movie, I think they wanted, mistakenly so, they wanted a franchise out of this. Because they definitely set up a sequel at the end of this movie. And maybe, maybe what they were thinking, and you know, maybe I'm assigning... Maybe I'm assigning ideals to people who had nothing this grand in scope in their heads, but okay, now you see this, and then you see Mikey with his new family at 16, and then you see him as Henry and Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, that maybe the franchise would be his life and how he becomes like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. But I think I'm assigning way too much credit to the filmmakers here. I just think because you, you okay there, there's that line at the end that oh we found the you know burned up skeleton you know which is they really can't tell that that's an old skeleton and why are the other bodies not completely burned like that because that's not the way fire works but okay fine whatever but there's the fact that you tell me that that tag at the end with him coming into the new family does not feel like a reshoot that 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 was not an add on that came later i think they actually killed him at the end in eight because it's pretty clear that the the dialogue about the skeleton was adr mm. I, I i don't know i mean maybe they thought they had a much better film on on their hands and yeah had this had a bigger release maybe it would have garnered something of a um following 
you know, because I, I think as movies of this type go, this is certainly not a bad example. I mean, I, I could probably name a couple of um, titles that, that would certainly kind of fall below this. Um, I think the only crime of this film when it comes to that kind of stuff is it is a little bit, it, it's a bit too, by, by the numbers, it's a little bit too bland to really kind of stand out. And did they think they were going to get a franchise out of it? Well, I guess I would have thought that they, they probably would have uh, looked at it and went, well, um, at the very least, we'll sort of put it out there. Then we'll have a choice, we'll have an option. Because... <laughs> Yeah, you could have gone places with the story, but I don't necessarily think it would have needed it. But uh, the fact that, you got to remember, at this point, every horror franchise was a franchise. Mm. You know, you didn't just make a horror movie at this point in time. You made the first in a franchise, or at least the first in a hopeful franchise. And I just can't see the Mikey franchise... <laughs> having really been successful. Because, I mean, okay, let's leave out the fact that this movie, you know, effectively got banned in the UK, and it, it did get banned in a few other European countries and whatnot, probably for the subject matter. Let's say this movie had become a hit. This movie just doesn't... This is not the kind of movie that, that you go, this really needs a sequel. No, you, you could have called it Mikey 2 Family 3. Uh, <laughs> it starts like, sounding like a, um, a sports game score, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, and then like, kind of like, just, um, Mikey 3, the next family. It just keeps moving on from family to family to family to family, just knocking. knocking I, I, I kind of got like a, a stepfather franchise sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where he just keeps moving. Because, okay, The Stepfather was a great movie that required no sequels and you really start to suspend your disbelief later because okay Mikey at the end of this movie is dead I don't mean dead dead but I mean officially he's dead you know they have things called fingerprints right mm -hmm. he definitely is on file somewhere you know Mikey with the new fi and then okay so if he's dead how does that post credit scene even happen does he just walk into a social service office? I lost my family. I need a new one. Give me one. And then a day late, a day later, like in this one, all of a sudden he's there. I mean, there, there are, there is a chain of evidence. There's a chain of people you have to go through that I, I don't know. Maybe it's the OCD in me, but I just kept screaming. That's not how this works. <laughs> I, I have a bit more tolerance for that, you know, just because um, I don't particularly worry about uh, the brevity of a film. Sometimes these things are just done like that just because, well, the film has to move on. Uh, so I, I don't tend to mind that too much. There's bigger issues with the uh, with the way that the story works um, that that are more important, I think, than something as simple as that. But had this gone forward and had sequels and all that kind of stuff, I, I don't think it would have had legs for very long. Um, it's not the omen. <laughs> it's, it's not like you can follow them from a small child to a grown man. I don't think it would um, it would have had enough variety. It, it probably have died 
by the second, certainly by the third instalment. So I don't think it would have had much in the way of legs. It wouldn't have had much of a life had it gone forward. As it is, well, it, it's kind of fine and complete enough, in in my opinion. But I actually think this movie coming out in 1992, you know, leaving aside the the James Bulger murder and just the fact that of the really bad timing in the UK, I think at this point, remember the slasher movies had basically died in America, and and this might not be a typical slasher movie, but would you at least say that agree with me that this is a slasher movie? At least in the last 30 minutes it is. Yeah, I've got no problem with that. I mean, I think it's, it certainly kind of goes along those lines. It certainly hits enough of those tropes to, to qualify. Uh, we've got the, um, uh, gratuitous nudity and, um, teen sex and, um, the perving over the stripping girls. We've got all of the, um, all of the classic hits in that. To call it a slasher film, I, I think it's certainly trying to be not just that, but trying to be a bit more. And few things it succeeds at, others not quite so much. That is some real high security swimwear she's got on. But uh, my my point was, the slasher movie boom died. It bottomed out. In the late 80s, like mm-hmm. 89, 90, it totally bottomed out. So for them to make this at this time was either really ballsy that, hey, we can make a different kind of slasher movie and really make this something special, or, hey, man, these things are still renting at, at the video store. Let's make one. Yeah, yeah fair enough. Um, I, I think that's... Um it, it's always worth having a go, and they do a reasonable job. It's just not the... Um, it, it can hardly sort of stand up as a classic. I, I just, incidentally, I mean, this scene is really kind of where the, the film starts to truly jump the shark. <laughs> it, it almost becomes a different movie after this point. It really does. It, it, it goes into full-on slasher film territory, um, as far as I'm concerned, with... Um, with puns and, and all sorts going on. It's, the tone shifts just massively. He starts quipping when he's about to kill someone. Um, the things he does becomes much, much more blatant and much more outrageous and much more obvious. So it's like, I don't know. It feels like the, uh, the writers just ran out of ideas and kind of went, well, let's, we, this stuff works from over here. We'll take it from this movie and we'll put it into this one. Do you know what tonally this movie really reminds me of? What's that? The hand that the hand that rocks the cradle. Okay. E- even the way it's shot, hand that rocks the cradle is in a posh white, you know, upper suburban neighborhood. Lots of whites, lots of people with pools, things like that. And, and then you, you've, you've got the undercover psycho character that's pretending to be nice. This this really reminds me of Hand That Rocks the Cradle, at least stylistically, or am I reaching? No, I don't think so. You know, I mean, um, certainly when it came to the, the 90s, there was that real kind of um, surge in films that were pretty much white people with white people's problems kind of thing, you know, and throwing a slasher in there and... Uh, Hey, but you and I are both white people. I know, I know. That's why we could speak about it, because they're one of us. 
Um, it's it's one of those one of those things that, that this kind of story about people who shouldn't have those kind of problems in their life, or at least you wouldn't expect them to have those kind of problems in their life. Very middle class, very clean cut kind of people um, were becoming very popular about the time of this coming out. Um, though I have to say, it's it, it replacing the kind of like um, very rich yuppie with a small child who gets getting bounced from family to family is a it's a ballsy move. <laughs> it, you know what? It is kind of American Psycho Junior version, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's because I, I mean he has all he has all the tropes. He, he he's got all of the the, the upper middle class toys, the video camera and all this. He's got all the weapons. This is sort of American Psycho Junior. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a little bit of the problem with it in that they've got that Patrick Bateman type character, but again, it's in a small person. It's in a child. And um, it, that's one of the things that's very tricky about the film for me is the fact that it, Mikey is so young but is made out to be so cunning as well. It's not to say that 10-year-olds can't be cunning, but he has kind of like um, foresight that just goes beyond the realms of um, believability. A little bit too well, far. I, I, was, I was thinking about something as I was watching this. What would happen if the genders were swapped? If Mikey were a little girl mm-hmm. doing these same things, obviously not perving over the neighbor girl, but maybe perving over a neighbor boy or something, do you think the movie would have played differently if it were a little girl? Oh, very possibly. Um, it would have uh, played even more against the kind of idea of what... Um, this person is, uh, yeah, it'd have, it'd have been an interesting sort of twist. Um, I mean, it could have been the little girl from the beginning. I think um, that would have been quite amusing. Mikey's trying to to kill her if she kills him. <laughs> that, that'd be a good twist. Or how about this? Mikey gets adopted by a Dexter Morgan type character, and you've got a serial killer trying to outwit a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> that could certainly work. Uh, yeah, you could have him sort of trying to put him on the on the straight and narrow as best as he could. I I just I don't know. I'm going to go back to the blandness because the movie just shots like this they're so overlit. You need to do something dynamic. This is a boring dialogue scene. I know it's a necessary dialogue scene. But they do nothing to make it interesting. I mean, look, even the shot composition, look at all that extra space on the side that's not really used. It, and then her head's cut off. One thing they could have done, and I think a more seasoned director might have done this, and I know this is going to be a weird comparison, but have you ever seen the original Invaders from Mars? I haven't, no. Well, in that movie, we have like a 10-year-old main character. The entire film is shot at low angles looking upwards, like the perspective of a child seeing all these events. If we're supposed to be looking at this movie from Mikey's perspective, 
It should have been lots of low-angle shots looking upwards. What Mikey is seeing, Mikey's perspective. I'm not talking a POV movie. I'm not talking Hardcore Henry. No. I'm just saying you, you shoot it at low, upticked angles, and it gives a 10-year-old's perspective on the world. That could have made it a really dynamic-looking movie, even with the same kind of lighting and things of that nature. That would have given it something interesting. But it's shot so... Because the camera is supposed to have a POV. Like, when we, the viewers, are seeing an event like this, we go, whose perspective is this from? So, whose perspective is this from? Exactly. And I don't mean I don't mean a literal perspective, but what character is this scene serving? Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, not, it, what I was saying earlier, though, wasn't it? it? It's one of those things that the film doesn't really have a um, a point of view. It's not really told. It doesn't have a voice. No, I mean, it's, it's not Mikey's score, at least not entirely. It's not any of the surrounding characters in particular. It's very third party. It's um, it's told by some mysterious third party, but we don't get any kind of feel for for why that is or who that might possibly be. Um, and I think that's one of the trickier things about this is I think it's supposed to be really Mikey's kind of point of view for the most part. But then you shouldn't have scenes like this necessarily. They should be done very differently. And I think that's part of the reason why the film can kind of fall a little bit flat is because there's um, a lot less investment in what's going on because we can't, we, we've got no kind of point of view to sort of become invested from. Um, but, the, but then there's also like, but I'm just talking about like, like the filmatic language mm-hmm. because there's a language to film because like some filmmakers like David Fincher is amazing at using film language. And again, this is a first-time director. He probably d- didn't even know what this was at this point. But, like, these characters are fighting, right? Mm. What you could do is you could shoot them at opposite sides of the room in a wide shot, yelling at one another, because they're apart both physically and in their discussions here. Like like in the movie Seven, you'll notice when the movie Seven is in its early scenes, Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman are almost always at the edge of the frame, away from each other. They're apart. As they start to think more and more alike, you'll notice the shots get tighter and tighter, and they are closer and closer in the shots. It's called film language that fools your brain by how the camera is set up and the blocking is done. This movie does none of that. It's just shot like, well, we need this character to do this. There's no film language in this. And I think for a movie like this, because this is technically a more psychological type film, you need that film language which could have given it so much more style and substance. Yeah, it's one of those, it's a competent film in terms of most of the technical aspects are, um, are, are done well enough that you can sort of you can sit down and you won't notice anything particularly wrong with it until you're sort of going uh, yes it's it's lacking that point of view it's lacking that kind of idea of um, where the story is being told from how uh, you know kind of how we see that world is not being informed by anything other than 
the utilitarian nature of what needs to be done in that particular shot. Um, yeah, we need to have the car drive across the, um, the the driveway. We need to see her doing uh, something with the with the fish tank. Because you know? <laughs> well, which fish also, but but that also brings up. I don't know if you noticed this, but this movie just it doesn't have enough story or script to fill a ninety minute runtime. This this feels like like the script would have fit better in a Tales from the Dark Side episode. Because look at how many scenes in this movie are are unnecessary. How many scenes in this movie could you have cut completely and it wouldn't have affected the story at all? The editor in me, I used to edit for TV news. I easily could have got this to under an hour and not lost a second of the story, Glenn. Mm, yeah, and I think, again, that really kind of comes down to... Um, it not really investing itself in in any particular character, where it should really have gone in so heavily into into Mikey's kind of um, psyche. Um, there's there's a lot that could be told about that character, not least a little bit about what a little bit more about what happened to him before. Uh, that is one of those things that you could tell if you. I, I also I also I, I want to interrupt you real quick. You know, he just attacked her with a hammer and smashed the fish tank. Yeah. Could she be moving a little bit faster? Yeah. She doesn't seem like this is that big of a deal, does it? No, and I, I have to say, this is one of the points that made me groan <laughs> the first time I saw it. Because uh, she's just casually walking to the fridge to get the ice. Yeah. It's like, hey, maybe make the phone call first, because yeah. your life is literally in danger right now, lady. Yeah, well, no, she's got, she's got the fish to feed and all that kind of stuff before she does that. So, you know, it's all these important things she's got to do. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> Priorities, man. Yeah. And and I'm sorry, I don't care how psychopathic this kid is. He's like half the size of her. You know, uh, it it really wouldn't take much of her because she knows he's trying to kill her at this point. So like, grab a weapon woman. Anything, you know. It, 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 when, you have a, when you have a tiny little killer like this... Mm-hmm. Like, what I've always said about the Child's Play movies that I find the most unrealistic, oddly enough, not the killer, serial killer who used voodoo to put his mind into a puppet, but you do know you could just punt this thing across the room, right? (laughs) How do you keep getting killed by it? You can just punt it. I mean, seriously, you just keep kicking. You would not get it within range. (laughs) It doesn't take you that much to defend yourself against... uh, uh, Someone that that small. And now she's, okay, you've got to. She's just going to go like, oh, now, now go away, go away, leave, leave mummy alone. <laughs> yeah, okay. You, you've got to, you got to kill her with a claw hammer. He's ten years old. He's not that formidable. Yeah. And he was just at the door. Did he, did he have Jason teleportation powers? I'm sorry if I'm getting super snarky right now. But I told you at the beginning, this movie irritated me, and it's at this point, I thought it lost everything. It just became a bad slasher movie. <laughs> I know, she's just put it down on the floor and just went, no, Mikey, no, bad boy. I, I, I'm Mikey, sorry. don't. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the TV out of your room. <laughs> See, at this point, it's like, no, come on, really? <laughs> it's... You know, and then you got Ferris Bueller's dad here coming in. And wait a minute, 
Wasn't the fish tank just smashed? Uh, or, or was that the, the that was the one in the other room? Yeah, yeah, that was the one in the other room. Okay. Because, but when Ashley Lawrence gets killed, that is absolutely another one of those. That's not how that works. I really don't think how Ashley Lawrence gets killed would be a fatal injury. Would it be painful? Yes. Would it do damage? Yes. She does not get wounded fatally, and yet it kills her. And this part I blame Ashley for, although maybe she was directed to do this. Did she die in a over-the-top fashion, or is it just me? <laughs> well, I mean, everybody in this film dies in an over-the-top fashion. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> he fires a bloody great big ball bearing at her, so... Uh, from a catapult, that's potentially fatal. Although it's an oddly understated way of um, killing someone off in a movie like this. Well, and like I said, I really thought she was going to be final girl on this. Mm. Not, not, not Josie Bissett. I didn't think she was going to be final girl. I actually expected her to die. So maybe the movie subverted my expectations with that, <laughs> but not really. It, I, I, it gets a little underwhelming in some respects, doesn't it? Um, and yes, you do want her to be the final girl. Fair enough, you want to kind of um, play it a little bit uh, um, in an unexpected way. I, I can live with that. That's, uh, you know, possibly for this movie, not a bad decision. But I think the the way that uh, the, the climax of the film happens is a little bit, a little bit kind of um, understated. But then you got a scene like this. Should one of you maybe call the police? Maybe? Instead of, yes, okay, it's an emotional thing. Mm-hmm. That was her friend, and, you know, they both knew Mikey. But maybe one of you want to call the cops or yeah, an no. ambulance? Maybe they're not dead. Maybe they're savable. Yeah. I, I, would, I would just call an ambulance. I mean, 911 exists at this point in 1992. <laughs> well, you know... Uh, far be it from me to say that uh, most movies of this kind um, do the most sensible things, or at least have the characters do the most sensible things. So uh, that's not entirely out of the realm of, uh, of um, expectations for a film like this. Though they do make some spectacularly dumb decisions. Well, like, okay, he just came <laughs> from the room that they were in. How did Mikey get behind him? Yeah. And and how does he not hear the... I know, I know. <laughs> Mikey took the bullets out of the gun. And, oh, it, it's it's like a different movie is happening now. It really is. It, it goes very goofy, doesn't it? You know, it, it's from the point that the um, the radio gets kicked into the pool. Uh, from that point on, the film just gets progressively more goofy. It, to some extent, it's a bit more fun. You can have a bit of a laugh at it. Because um, up until that point, it's um, either desperately uncomfortable in terms of the kind of sexual nature of, of, of Mikey's behavior or um, played decidedly straight-faced. Like like the bow and arrow here? Yeah. Uh, again completely Chekhov's gunned from earlier in in the film but okay a bow and arrow can be deadly yeah I don't I'm not a maybe you know some archery expert can tell me but I'm not sure a 10 year old's gonna have the strength 
to be able to penetrate a man's chest like that. I don't think that would be a problem, um, necessarily, but I don't think that would be an instant kill, <laughs> put it that way. I guess you were looking for these. And yeah, here's, here's your one-liners. Yeah, and... puns. <laughs> God damn it, movie. Uh, and, and then, of course, you got the Ashley Lawrence scene that we talked about earlier. And again, I'm going to disagree with you. I think this would be damaging. I think it would it would be painful. But I do not think a ball bearing to the face is a fatal incident unless it like somehow went down her throat and choked her to death. <laughs> I, I, no, it's, it's, I, 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 it'd be like hitting someone on the head with a ball peen hammer. I, I just, I, I don't think this is fatal. I mean, like, right there, okay? She just got hit. It was fine. Oh, and the POV shot, this shot, is so ridiculous, it almost made me burst out oh, laughter God, yes. when I was watching this movie. Oh, I almost blanked that out of my mind. Yeah, you forgot that there's a ridiculous POV <laughs> shot, and then she she starts acting like her console just exploded in a Star Trek episode. Look, See, look at that. Look at that. I wanted to have the phantasm ball kind of spikes come out. That's almost what you expect at that point. <laughs> it, it's just... And then he's like, oh, damn, why do they got to be so heavy? I know. Maybe because you're a 10-year-old psychopath? It's, it's just the it's the um, the careful arrangements and all that kind of stuff. And this really does, you know, is one of those things that uh, is so over the top. In a film that has taken a lot of time to be kind of, you know, yeah, it's a little bit over the top even right at the beginning, but nothing like this. It tries to play it fairly straight. And it gets to this point, it's like... Um, Utterly ridiculous. I'm surprised he, well, and, he, he didn't say, oh, no, she can't come to the phone, she's dead tired. Well, but then, like, when when all the, the people are arranged around the table when John Deal gets home, that is straight out of the slasher movie Happy Birthday to me. Oh, yeah. That is straight out of that to the point of, it has to be a reference. I'm not saying plagiarism. That has got to be a reference. And again, even by the 90s, this isn't how gas stoves work. <laughs> gas stoves have a cutoff. If there's no flame, especially in an upper middle class home like this, yeah. if there's no flame, the gas turns itself off. Those are called safety precautions. You can't do this. Now, in the 70s, yes, you didn't have that. You could blow up an apartment like the, at the beginning of The Mechanic with the how we use the acid on the gas line and all that. You could do that in the 70s. Today, or even 1992, no. There are fail-safes all over for that. So when did you give up your career as a gas engineer to become a film critic? <laughs> don't, you judge my, don't you judge my career decisions? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! I used to have a gas stove, so I know for a fact. And I had a crappy one from the '80s, and it had cutoffs. An upper middle class home like this is definitely going to have cutoffs. That if the pilot light goes out, the gas stops. Yeah, but we're we're in slasher world. <laughs> I, I can give it um, a little bit of those kind of things. I ain't going to judge you too harshly for that. No, I mean, the only thing I'll give... Uh, I, I want to give the director a little bit of credit here, though. You'll notice how after we got ridiculous, 
he at least lowered the lighting a little bit. Mm-hmm. He, he made the lighting a little more slasher movie moody. Not a lot, but a little bit. Yeah, it looks nice in this scene. It actually looks like he's trying. It's what? not full of that overlit 80s television episode mm-hmm. lighting. Well, you know, I mean, one of the things I do for a living is is as a um, I do lighting in theatre and stuff like that. And yeah, the rest of the film is very flat when it comes to the lighting. This this and looks nice. I, yeah, it actually looks like he's like he's using the the slats from the Venetian blinds. Mm-hmm. It. it I hate to say it, it feels like another director took over <laughs> in these last few scenes. Because even when actually Lawrence and Ferris Bueller's dad were killed, it was subtle symbolism there, <laughs> that, uh, that, you know, it, it, it was still flat. And then all of a sudden, it starts looking like a movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know if, I don't know what, what came over him. Oh, the arrow moved. <laughs> Continuity. <laughs> hey, sh- would you say she's quivering uh, now? Oh, you had to go there. <laughs> hey, I'm a punny kind of guy. <laughs> well, as long as you're not like this little punner. You know, he went and took a shower. Again, what does he expect to happen? He, I, mean, I know he expects to blow up the house. He expects to kill John Deal and maybe Josie Bissett. But what did you expect to happen? Did you, ex- you know, I, I, this is what I'm not understanding. Are you just expecting to get away with this? Well, this is the thing. He's, he's come up with his evil master plan. And, um, yeah, you know, it is one of those points where it's it's utterly ridiculous. The first one you can sort of get behind a little bit, you know. I mean, it's, it is ridiculous, but... It's not out of the realms of any kind of possibility that someone could kill people then kind of go, it was someone else. Um, this is this is completely over the top. The, this scene, I just kept going, oh, fuck you. <laughs> I mean, it's like no care. It's like John Deal's character has no peripheral vision oh, yeah. in this. In this, he doesn't see the blood on the phone. Nothing, it's like, come on. On, dude, just a little peripheral vision. It, it, it's just this. This seems pathetic. Slasher victim tunnel vision. It's uh, one of those things that afflicts um, anybody who's about to die in a uh, in a slasher film. Could you at least take the arrow out of his chest? Yeah. <laughs> and, and then, okay, so the the skeleton was at the school. Mm-hmm. So he killed Ashley Lawrence and everybody. So then he went to the school after it was closed yeah. and got the skeleton yeah. before John Deal got home. Yeah. <laughs> Even I'm going to say no. Nope. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to say nope on, and then his no. God, this is this is just bad. It's not the best. Part and and again, he's it? standing. He's standing right there. How is Mikey not killed? I'm not talking about the Mike, you know, the the fake skeleton Mikey at the table. How is he not killed? He threw that right next to the house that blew up, like the house in Phantasm Two. Yeah. I'm sorry, kid, you're dead and deaf. He's <laughs> got the psychopathic character shield. <laughs> I guess. 
But, but then there's this quick little line about, oh, when we found a skeleton of a 10-year-old. Okay, but again, none of the others would have been skeletons. So no, no. you just assume it's you'd, Mikey. You'd how about dental how, dental records? <laughs> yeah. How about you go dental records? And then, and then again, like I said, you got the, it's not a post-credit scene, but the post-scene here where he's with the new family, you ask yourself, there's a lot of steps we missed here, movie. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to show us this. There's a lot of steps here. Uh, I just imagine the skeleton of him going to the coroners and uh, going, oh, okay, that's interesting. His, um, his bones seem to be wired together with wire. Is there anything about it in his medical records? <laughs> These bones seem bleached somehow. <laughs> or, or, or coated, because the skeleton we always had in our science room had that, like, weird coating on it, like that, like a plastic sheen, mm-hmm. so that everything wouldn't damage. Yeah, but none of that's weird. <laughs> so, all right, is, how would you sum Mikey up? I mean, obviously, people are going to buy this DVD, they're going to listen to us rambling on and on about it, but... What did what do you think the movie could have done versus what it did, or or not could have done what it should have done for cinema? I think what it should have been was what it seemed to be kind of pointing towards at the beginning, um, a much straighter film that that really kind of doesn't push the the, the boundaries of believability quite as much. And, but it just seems to run out of steam and then kind of falls back on a lot of um, ideas that are uh, well, a lot of puns and that kind of stuff, a lot of the cliches. So, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of good ideas, uh, a lot of good intentions that sort of went out the window just with possibly a little bit of lack of directorial experience and a little bit of lack of discipline. And, yeah, I, I think if we got the writing down a bit better, it would have worked. Well, then, do you think the movie should be more well-known? Because, like I said, it barely got a DVD release. It barely got a VHS release. To the best of my knowledge, it never played on cable. It is currently unavailable to stream. So, with Excess putting out this disc, do you think this is probably the first time most people are going to run across the movie? Very possibly. I'm actually glad it's being kind of uh, being released and and given a DVD release. I think there's a lot of people will get a bit of a kick out of this, even if it's not as successful as uh, it, it, as a piece of filmmaking. It's not the first film to come along that isn't perfect by a long shot, but still manages to be entertaining. And that's one thing about this film. Uh, for whatever reason, I did find it entertaining. I wasn't bored at any point. I was incredulous on a few occasions. But, um, yeah, it's definitely an entertaining film. So, you know, it's it's good that it's got a release. So, with this, I want to thank XS for giving us the chance to prattle on about this. Where can people find the cynical, ce- the cynical celluloid himself, Glenn Criddle? <laughs> You can find me on YouTube as LuckyMan101 or at uh, CynicalCelluloid.com. 
And then I can be found at 1201beyond.com. You can contact me, 1201beyond at gmail.com, if you want to tell me how wrong I am about this fantastic movie that you absolutely love. But Excess Entertainment is a fantastic company, and I thank them for always letting us prattle on and on and on and bitch about movies that no one else has heard of.